I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. The stones of this church are full of the prayers of the people. Human beings are storytellers. That's a quote from Pope Francis's message for World Communications Day. Stories are the building blocks of one of the greatest books ever written. The Bible epitomises our desire for great stories and highlights our need for words to guide us through what's right and what's wrong. The stories in the Bible may have first been given life more than 2,000 years ago, yet they still capture the hearts and minds of so many. Every moment of our life is guided by story, and few know that better than those that have devoted their lives to preach the Word of God. People like Cardinal Vincent Nichols, Archbishop of Westminster, my guest today. Chapter 1. The Story of Us. As the strength of the Bible prevails today, it appears that no matter the setting, no matter the time or place, the issues that sit at the core of us as human beings have remained the same. But religion is more than just an aid to guide us through the world. It's about community. If you cast your mind back to episode two of the podcast with Graham Sibley, we spoke about how deeply personal football can be, and the same is true of religion. In fact, we even mentioned the marriage of both of those worlds highlighted in the first few frames of the documentary Sunderland Till I Die, as a local priest, in church on Sunday, asked God to help the team do well. This pandemic has served as a stark reminder of that desire for community, for that connection with others. For churchgoers, finding fulfilment while congregations have been forced apart has been tough. But it, it is an example of how our life is impoverished when we're separated, socially distanced. And I think for, for all sorts of people, it creates all sorts of tensions. For those who live very closely together with just a few other people, it, it puts those relationships under stress and they need great discipline just to keep a steady way of pass, you know, shaping the day to get through. For those who are on their own, uh, it creates another set of tensions. For those who are divided, separated from people they really love, there's another set. And all of these different strands of life, we normally, normally manage to weave together fairly well. Often we run into difficulties and get balances wrong. But in these circumstances, there's, there's no room for manoeuvre. There's no room to step back. There's no room to say, other than I'm going out for a walk with the dog or whatever. It's very difficult to do the job of nurturing and fostering a community with all these restrictions. So we really hope it doesn't go on too much longer. Absolutely. In preparation for this, I dug out um, something that was given to me many years ago. This is um, my lion children's Bible that was given to me by my grandparents on. And there's, and there's a date. So I'm really dating myself here. It was May the 22nd, 1982, on the occasion of my first Holy Communion. And it's interesting because as you just skip through the contents page, the very first page of the Old Testament says, this is the story of God's people. And it struck me as a child, and it still strikes me today, how important the role of story is in um, religion, in faith. And, and when you think about His Holiness's message, what he says, I've just, I've got it up on screen here. It says, human beings are storytellers because we're engaged in a process of constant growth 
discovering ourselves and becoming enriched in the tapestry of the days of our life. Firstly, that's beautiful uh, in terms of the words that he's used, but he goes on to talk about the fact that scripture is story. And he says sacred scripture is the story of stories. Those two things really go together, don't they? They do. And, and if I can just backtrack slightly, uh, your Bible represents uh, many, many people's understanding of their faith, but also many people's enrichment of their family life. I mean, what, what fascinates me, for example, is uh, the Antiques Roadshow. You know, you get people and they want to tell the story of how this object uh, has come into their family, what it means. And then when they're told it's worth £100,000, they simply say, it's not going anywhere. It's not going, it's part of our story. And when you see that juxtaposition of monetary value against the story of a family, then you know what really is important. And, and, the, and Pope Francis is a wonderful storyteller. He's a wonderful writer. And he can catch uh, the flavor of how we approach life and how we feel about life and as you were uncover some of the things that are really important now i remember a long time ago listening to a learned scripture scholar who explained to us how the new testament narratives are stories that have been tested and tested until they eventually got into the form in which we received them the gospels were not written till you know 50 60 70 years after jesus had died now what was going on in those 60 years people were telling the story of jesus and they were telling it with great faithfulness but they were just edging it this way and that to suit the the audience so each of the gospels is different because the story is being told to a different group of people and I, and this chap said to me a wonderful phrase he said good storytelling is when you rearrange the outward the outward elements so as to reveal the inner meaning even more clearly and and i think that's a great art of a storyteller you tell it in one setting in one way in another setting in a slightly different way and a man who have, i have in mind could retell the gospel stories into a modern idiom in a way that was absolutely spellbounding he could just stand in front of 100 people and say, I'm going to tell you the story of the prodigal son, but put it into a modern idiom. The inner truth was exactly the same. It's wonderful stuff. As storytellers, we've borrowed heavily from scripture on the big screen. Um, I think of things like, you know, Charlton Heston's sweeping epic Ten Commandments and and just literally last year, uh, the two popes with Jonathan Price and, and Anthony Hopkins. We've got a rich history of dipping into the Bible and scripture and using it to tell stories, either in a period setting or to, to the point you just made, bringing them right up to date and putting it into you know modern day inner city Britain. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think we keep coming back to that one source, bit of source material to draw from in terms of inspiration? Well, you won't be surprised at my answer. Uh, I think it's because it actually shows us the truth of ourselves in its particular incarnate, as you say, in flesh form. That's the story of who we are. And that's the story of the struggles we face, of the meanness that is deep in our hearts, of the grandeur which is in there, and some of the drama that we live through, often in a small script, in a tiny script, 
but it's written in capital letters in the story of Jesus. And that's that's what we mean by revelation. That's what we mean by something's been uncovered here. And what's uncovered is the depth of the truth about humanity. There's a wonderful phrase that takes us back to Genesis. The human person is dust made for glory. So we're dust, we know we're part of this earth, we know we've got feet of clay, all those other expressions. And yet we also know there's something within every single person that reaches for the stars, that is built for glory. And and in the, the unfolding of the Bible stories, that's the core message. We are dust made for glory. And in Jesus, we say he is the way and the truth and the life of how to go from dust to glory. But you know, if I may, the, the cinema and storytellers retell the story in totally different forms. Think about Lord of the Rings, for example. Think about Lord of the Flies. You know, most of these things are trying to explore what is the core of humanity and how does it play out. Chapter two, the importance of truth. To continue on the subject of Pope Francis's recent message, one sentence that stands out to me is, we need courage to reject false and evil stories. We do live in an era of fake news, an era where terrorists can rally support by posting hate manifestos on social media, where echo chambers for even the most damaging beliefs can be found all too easily. With the scale of distribution available to us, our writing is more powerful now than it has ever been, and as writers, we have a responsibility and a duty to think about the language we use. One of my perennial bugbears is when newsreaders speak about an item of news as a story. I think it's a misuse of the word. A story isn't essentially about information. So I think we have to make a distinction between news bulletins, which are supposed to be about information, which might be so biased or so you know, carefully selected or so manipulated as to give something that isn't information, is false information. And on the other hand, there are stories that draw us into evil. And they are, for some people, deliberately done so because people have cast their lot uh, with what is dark, with what is satanic, with what is diabolical. It's very interesting. The word diabolical is the opposite of symbolical. And diabolical means to throw things apart, whereas symbolical means to draw things together. So there are stories that are designed to divide and to shatter. And there are stories that are devised to build and to bring together. And and I think storytelling is used by those who want to perpetrate division, superiority, hatred, darkness, even, even the satanic. And we should be aware of that as well as being aware of false news, which I think is quite separate. But the two issues are both there. Just staying on symbolism for a second, one of the things that this show sort of represents is, is the the notion that we've been telling stories since before we had language, um, whether that be on cave paintings, whether it be with gesture, but stories, we're, in, we're innate storytellers, as His Holiness um, has obviously said. I remember growing up and I remember um, the, the church, I, I went to a Roman Catholic primary school and then a, a Roman Catholic um, secondary school. So the Catholic 
church was ever present in my formative years. And one of the things I remember vividly is the symbolism and everything that sits around it. It's not just a simple narrative. It comes with, and because this is a, a show for storytellers, it comes with costume and props and paraphernalia that go around it. That Do, do you think that those things add to the story? Do you think that people find comfort in symbols and in and the costume of religion? Yes, I do. I do because what it does is it, it leaves me free to do two things, to enter at my own pace and to use my own imagination. So when I put vestments on as a priest, I am not trying to enhance the projection of my personality. I'm precisely doing the opposite. I'm trying to say now it's not Vincent Nichols, it's somebody who is assuming a role in this great drama of the liturgy. And because I don't impose myself, I'm not leading this in that sense. But I'm not the storyteller. You know, the liturgy is the storyteller. And I've got to respect that and leave space for people to enter it as they wish at their level, at their pace. And it might be very different for different people in the church. But because it is uh, a work of the people, that's what the word liturgy means, everybody is contributing and it should not be dominated. Therefore, the symbolisms, which are bigger than the individual, stand a bit distant from the personalities. They create the theatre in which we can do these things. If I may add a little story. Please. I was a young priest in Liverpool, in... Um, in Toxteth, actually. And there's this chap called Albus, and he came to be married. He came with his girlfriend, and I met him, and uh, they said they wanted to get married. And I said, okay, um, I've never seen you here before. You know, wh why have you come here to be married? Well, it's a church, isn't it? I said, yeah, I know it's a church, but do you ever come? Not often, not sometimes. And I said, well, tell me, why do you want to be married here? And we went on a bit, and I was obstinate, and he got a bit angry. And he said to me, are you stupid or something? You know, what do you want? Do you want me to go down and get married in the loo? And I said, no, I want to know why you want to be married here. And then he said these words, don't you understand? The stones of this church are full of the prayers of the people. Wow. I have never forgotten that. And, and that's part of the story of a church. That's fascinating. What you what you were saying um, about you know people and their own minds and their own imagination. We see this time and time again in different types of storytelling. Is that often you can give the audience or or in, in this regard um, the congregation and the community you give them the thread of the message and they will join those dots themselves depending on what it is they need or where it is what memories they're they're kind of um, dealing with. Religion has always struck me as a deeply, deeply personal thing, as well as it being a communal um, enterprise at the same time. It's, it's interesting how something that brings people together can also at the same time be so individual, depending on what people are going through and what comfort or support they may need from their faith. That's true. And I always think uh, when I preach, I am doing no more than letting a few words go like birds. And I will fly and they might land, but they land and have a different impact on everybody in the church in a different way. So if I were to ask people at the end of mass, what did that sermon mean to you? Some might say, I, I didn't listen. I was thinking my own thoughts. Some might pick out one tread, somebody another. 
it will have provoked one thing in one person and something entirely different in another. And it's that, you're absolutely right, it's that combination of all, as it were, I don't know what image to use, all coming together around the same table, all coming together bathing in the same river, whatever, but we're all doing it in, in a way that is deeply personal and yet in the symbol of it all, uh, binds us together in a common humanity and a common following of Christ. Chapter 3. The Myth of Individualism Our deep interconnectivity is the very lifeblood of how we are able to exist and survive, how we've been able to use our shared knowledge to build and shape the world around us. A sense of belonging lives in everyone. No matter how much of an outcast a person claims to be, deep down we're all looking for something to connect to. And yet it feels as though nowadays the narrative that we're fed makes us feel as though we can't ask for help and that our achievements are diminished if we haven't accomplished them alone. Well, I think, that, again, not to make this philosophical, but it, it does illustrate how we risk impoverishing our shared life with too much emphasis on individualism. You know, we are not self-sufficient, self-standing, self-fulfilling individuals. And yet some of the culture that we have today does suggest that. We're, we go nowhere without a community. We don't even come into the world without a community that of, of a man and a woman who creates us. And then we belong there. And that's the first sense of belonging that we have and gradually it is spread and you know the story it takes a family to bear a child but a village to bring the child to maturity and then on and on and so the those wider things that draw us together i think another wonderful example of it is music and and i think the creativity that people have shown in these 10 weeks of how to keep creating music with the internet facilities that we have, just shows you how important it is. And that too is a, is a great storyteller, a language and sound. I recently interviewed Dame Evelyn Glenny, who is a world-renowned percussionist, and she's also completely deaf. And I, we talked about the narrative of listening when you can't hear for the, with these things that stick out of the side of your face. And she said, when you think about it, we are we are percussionists before we're born because we bang and kick, you know, in, in the body. And and we talked about music and what it and what it means to people. But you're right, human beings as creatures are are pretty not unique, but we are unable to take care of ourselves for a long time after we are born. You see animals in the wild that are pretty much self sufficient within 24 hours because they have to be. Human beings are not. We don't. We don't. We haven't evolved like that. Therefore we should conclude that community and family and you know friendship and having other people around us is part of who we are so why are we trying to all be you know why are we trying to get away from all that yeah yeah again a little story uh, a fellow bishop of mine was in a primary school and one of the kiddies said to him um, do you wear a bib when you eat your dinner <laughs> so the bishop said <laughs> well i used to and at the end of my life, I will probably, but not at the moment. <laughs> not at the moment. So, so we have to have this sense of, um, of of the span of life and of the dependencies that we have. You know, it is one of the most fascinating things about these ten weeks and this lockdown and this whole pandemic. It's it's broken the myth of individualism. You know, we actually 
are bound together. Nobody's life, nobody's life has remained untouched by this. And we suddenly realize we depend. And and these Thursday evenings, the applause for the NHS workers, you know, the applause you've had for bus drivers, for dustbin men, for all, all these people whose contribution is normally just taken for granted. Suddenly we're realizing that we depend on them too. So a, a shared sense of dependence is a very positive thing. And, and it, it goes against the myth of independence. I think we're redefining, and we've talked about this on the show before, we're redefining what it is that is important to us, both from an um, emotional and well-being perspective, but also the people in our lives who are important. I guess we've always known that clinicians and medical workers are important, but now you add in um, people that stack shelves in the supermarket, people that bring you food, you know, we're redefining what it is that's important because we're, we're sort of understanding that, well, if I cannot get food, that's clearly a bad thing. But if you're someone who is paid poorly um, to risk going to work so that food can be on the shelves, and if you talk to them, they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. I mean, I know, I know actors who just changed overnight and got jobs in supermarkets because they, they needed to work. They felt um, they felt useful, which I, I've heard that a lot. I've, people feel useful and that has to be a good thing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and there are lots of things we can draw from here. Do you know, just as you were talking before, there was another theme that came into my mind and forgive me for jumping around a little bit, but uh, there are different types of stories that we tell. Uh, I am more comfortable, not surprisingly, and I think most people love the story of good overcoming evil. And, you know, you think of a child in bed and they say, tell me the story of whatever it is. They might have heard it every night for last week, but they want to hear it again because it's a story that reassures and, and kind of puts the world back together in the right shape before they go to sleep. There's another strand of storytelling, though, that, that I'm more uneasy about, and that is winners and losers. You know, the stories of uh, even great military victories, uh, they, they need a, a bit of nuancing. And I think age does that. And, and Pope uh, Francis used a wonderful phrase in one of these massive youth gatherings. And he said to this million young people, if you want to be a sign of hope, Go home and listen to your grandparents. Because wow. he said, yeah, yeah. Because you'll hear from them stories of mature living, a mature living which have probably overcome, you know, the the, the rough and tumble of winner and loser, and have, have reached a different level of understanding of life. And that's this handing on of that wisdom. And stories are often the, one of the best ways of doing it. And talking of stories, um. What are you most looking forward to when, when this is finally all over? Oh, it's just that freedom to to move and catch up with people and to go back, if you like, to go back to my main job, which is trying to create and work with other priests and the people in the parishes to create those moments in which this, this great story, which takes us to the heart of our souls, to the heart of our being, can be retold again in its fullness within the context of a community. And you know people come out of mass feeling restored. 
it's you know feeling just feeling good they come out feeling good because the bits have come together again and off they go and carry on trying to do their best we miss that very much Cardinal Vincent Nichols thank you very much I appreciate it thank you conclusion a massive thank you to Cardinal Vincent Nichols the Archbishop of Westminster for joining me on the podcast and to recap what have we learned Depending on your circumstances and your backstory, this pandemic will be affecting you in a unique way. Context is key. Think about the many different ways people can react to certain events and capitalise on those interesting juxtapositions in your writing. When he dons his religious vestments, the Archbishop drops all ego and lets the story of the liturgy take over. Embrace the thrill of a story that's beginning to take on a life of its own. A great tale can come to mean more than any one person. The Bible speaks to the very core of our being. As the Archbishop says, religious elements are prevalent in so many stories, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Lord of the Flies. Boil the Gospel down to its simplest form and you can learn so much and take such incredible inspiration from it in your writing. Let your words fly like birds. Each individual will take away something unique from your message or story, even if their meaning isn't what you intended, so revel in that fact. Try not to stick rigidly to one intention or idea. And finally, the Archbishop says, there's something in each and every person that reaches for the stars, that's built for glory. You're no different. Aim high, work hard, earn it. You surely deserve it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Coming up next week, we'll be in conversation with Michael Pritchard, the Director of Education and Public Affairs at the Royal Photographic Society. Although we do have this ability to take hundreds and thousands of images on a, a single memory card, what you can't get away is that you need to have a sense of what you're photographing, why you're photographing, if you want to create an image that has any lasting meaning. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.